and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the release today of the Biden administration's NASA security strategy that makes clear the post-Cold War is definitively over. Joining us is Tom Kalina, Director of Policy at the Plowshares Fund, where he works as a researcher, analyst and advocate to end U.S. nuclear testing, rationalize anti-missile programs, extend the non-proliferation treaty, and secure Senate ratification of a New START treaty. He previously served as research director of the Arms Control Association, was the executive director and co-founder of the Institute for Science and International Security, and the director of the Global Security Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. He's the co-host of the Press the Button podcast and the co-author with William Perry of The Button, The New Nuclear Arms Race and Presidential Power from Truman to Trump. We will discuss the sad truth that nuclear weapons no longer keep the peace since Putin is using nuclear deterrence as a shield behind which he is waging a conventional war on his neighbor, and the irony that Putin may not be able to accept losing the war without escalating to nukes, which means we might need to provide him with an off-ramp. Then we look into the call by the head of the UN for a rapid action force to be deployed in Haiti, which is now a lawless state controlled by gangs. Joining us is Gary Pierre-Pierre, a Haitian-born Pulitzer Prize-winning multimedia and entrepreneurial journalist who left the New York Times in 1999 to launch the Haitian Times, a New York-based English-language weekly publication serving the Haitian diaspora. He is the co-founder of the City University of New York's Center for Community and Ethnic Media, and we will discuss his latest article at the Haitian Times, Another Invasion of Haiti is Coming. Then finally, we will look into why the Democratic candidate for the United States Senate in Wisconsin, Mandela Barnes, is trailing and not miles ahead of the most beatable Republican Senator, Ron Johnson. Joining us is Matthew Rothschild, the executive director of the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign, who was previously editor and publisher of the Progressive magazine in Madison, Wisconsin, where he worked for 32 years. We will discuss the effective Republican TV blitz of racist attack ads and calls from concerned Barnes supporters that he needs to show more fire. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Tom Kalina, who's the Director of Policy at the Plowshares Fund, where he works as a researcher, analyst, and advocate to end U.S. nuclear testing, rationalize anti-missile programs, extend the non-proliferation treaty, and secure Senate ratification of a new START treaty. He previously served as research director of the Arms Control Association, was the executive director and co-founder of the Institute for Science and International Security, 
and the director of the Global Security Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. And he's the co-host of the Press the Button podcast and the co-author with William Perry of The Button, The New Nuclear Arms Race and Presidential Power from Truman to Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, Tom Kalina. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Well, thanks for joining us, Tom. And today you were at the address given by National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan at Georgetown University, an event co-hosted by the Center for New American Security Think Tank. And of course, today, the Biden administration released its long-awaited national security strategy. So the headlines at this point basically seem to focus on the statement in the strategy that the post-Cold War era is definitively over. That's not exactly a cheerful message in itself, is it? <laughs> uh, no, I suppose it's not. And it's not really clear what it means. I mean, I, mean, I think what, what the Biden administration was hoping for with this national security strategy was to shift attention to China. Uh, that's what they wanted to do when they came into office. They wanted to shift to China away from Russia, away from the Middle East, uh, and, and, and give to China the attention they, they think it deserves. And of course, that plan was interrupted by uh, President Putin and Russia's uh, brutal and unjustified invasion of Ukraine. And, and that's why the strategy was delayed uh, essentially for the last six plus months as they reconfigured the strategy to, in a sense, make it make it kind of a dual approach, both to countering China uh, diplomatically primarily, but also dealing with Russia uh, militarily and in, in all the different ways. So, so now they have a much more um, sort of complicated, but at the same time nuanced approach. Um, and it, 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 yes, it's, it's not like the post-Cold War period because um, we're not dealing with the same kind of superpower rivalries. Uh, we're dealing with, with a resurgent Russia in Europe that is seeking to rebuild its empire, or at least that's, that's the way that President Putin seems to perceive what he's doing. And I think that's very different reality or a very different place to be than the Biden administration was expecting, that anyone was expecting uh, the world to be facing at this point. And what was your takeaway from Jake Sullivan's talk today? I assume he's expanded on the new national security strategy. Uh, yes, he did. Uh, you know, and he, and he made it clear that, that they really do want to focus um, on, uh, on China, on transnational threats like climate change, uh, pandemics, and all the rest. Uh, and I think they're, they're struggling very hard uh, not to sort of get completely distracted by what's happening in Ukraine and kind of, you know, lose their ability to focus on all these issues. Uh, but I think, you know, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, said it well. You know, they can't do everything. They can't focus on every issue at once. And I think that the problem is that that by by focusing on all the issues um, which they want to do, they they run the danger of losing the immediate focus that they have to put um, on the war in Ukraine. I mean, that that is the dominant issue that's happening right now. Uh, That's where there's a major threat to Europe, both uh, militarily, diplomatically and also on energy security. That's where, you know, we're seeing the greatest threat of nuclear war for the past 60 years since the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, so that is the priority of the day. Um, and, and, you know, national security strategies need to look broadly. They need to cover all the issues. But it, it, ultimately, I was surprised by how little 
uh, National Security Advisor Sullivan had to say about the crisis du jour, which is Ukraine. Well, it was, after all, his boss, President Biden, who pointed out that this is the most dangerous crisis since Jack Kennedy faced off with Khrushchev in 1962 over the Cuban Missile Crisis. And Biden, of course, himself said we're closer to Armageddon. So, my God, uh, you can't run away from headlines like that, can you? Uh, no, nor nor should we. Uh, I mean, this really is uh, an, an eye-opening uh, threat. You know, I think people are, are waking up to the nuclear threat that never really went away. It kind of went into hibernation. At the end of the Cold War, people drifted away from worrying about it. Uh, but unfortunately, we didn't deal with it, right? We, we sort of left nuclear arsenals at low levels uh, in countries like the United States, uh, Russia, China, and others. And now what we're seeing uh, is a resurgent Russia using the nuclear weapons uh, left over from the Cold War, but that we didn't quite get around to getting rid of or agreeing to get rid of. Uh, and now Russia is using its nuclear forces as a cover to invade weaker states like Ukraine and making nuclear threats to say, you know, don't get it, don't get too involved here or we'll use these nuclear weapons against you. Uh, it's a very, very dangerous situation. Uh, the best we can do at this point is take those threats seriously because we have a President Putin who I don't think he wants to use nuclear weapons, but he's losing ground in Ukraine. And if he gets desperate enough, we have to take this, the possibility seriously that he could be in a situation where using nuclear weapons might be the best of bad alternatives for him. Uh, and unfortunately, the best we can do is to deter him from using nuclear weapons. And deterrence is just a fancy term for persuasion, right? We need to persuade Russia that using nuclear weapons is not in their best interests. Uh, and if you really think about that, that means that the ultimate decision is in Putin's hands. I mean, it's up to President Putin whether he uses nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Uh, it's a dangerous place to be. So you're, in effect, talking about this new nuclear strategy, if you will, or this new doctrine, not that it's been enunciated, of predatory nuclear states, where they use the mutually assured destruction doctrine that kept the peace, if you will, during the Cold War. The idea was that nuclear weapons kept the peace. Now that's been turned on its head by Russia using the MAD doctrine as a, as a shield in which to prosecute a conventional war against Ukraine with impunity, at the same time threaten NATO with nuclear weapons. So this leads to the real question here, and I wondered whether Jake Sullivan addressed it today, is that the main point still is deterrence, as you say, and did the Biden administration articulate a nuclear deterrence message? At the same time, clearly, somebody has to find a way uh, for Putin to avoid that he's in a situation where he has no choice to use nuclear weapons. So isn't that the, the paradox and the challenge we have? Uh, it is. I mean, you know, the ultimate paradox here is that we, the West, uh, is supporting Ukraine so that Ukraine can can fight the good fight and, and push Russia back. Uh, and they're doing that. I mean, the, the people of Ukraine uh, are being incredibly brave and they deserve all the credit. Um, for having the successes on the battlefield that they've had so far. Um, the paradox is that the more successful Ukraine is, 
the more Russia loses. And, and that creates this danger where Russia gets pushed into a corner and President Putin feels like he has to do something uh, dramatic, like use a nuclear weapon. Uh, and I think in, a, in the current situation, all we have is deterrence. So we have to use it. We have to deter uh, Russia and President Putin as much as we can by making it clear to him as the president and the national security advisor and other Biden administration officials have done that if Russia goes nuclear, there will be significant consequences that will make Russia very unhappy. Uh, the Biden administration has not spelled out exactly what those consequences would be. Uh, we think they would not be the U.S. use of nuclear weapons in response to Russian use of nuclear weapons. It could very well be uh, a, a U.S. or NATO conventional attack on Russian forces in Ukraine, although there's great risks to that as well. It could also be just stepped up Western support of Ukraine to keep fighting the good fight that it's been fighting. But but the point here is that, you know, if we're lucky enough to get through this crisis, it's because we were lucky enough to convince President Putin not to use nuclear weapons. And we need to start thinking about if we get through this crisis, how do we avoid the next one? You know, and what I keep thinking about is 60 years ago, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis where we learned a lot of the same lessons we're learning today, which is that any crisis that involves nuclear weapons is, is incredibly dangerous. Any mistakes you make get magnified a hundredfold. And any crisis that involves nuclear weapons is inherently uh, potentially catastrophic. And so we need to think about a way going forward after this crisis is how do we get out of this deterrence relationship? Uh, because depending on deterrence is a dangerous game, at some point, our luck will run out, and we need to find a different path before it's too late. Well, that's the challenge in, in essence, isn't it, Tom Kalina, that not only do you have to deter Putin, you've also got to find a way to give him an out or, or an off-ramp, as they say, because essentially for the good of the planet, you know, it's more important well, to save the planet than to defeat and humiliate this unique nuclear madman threatening nuclear weapons. I mean, it's it's not easy, but at the same time, Biden did say in his talk last night on CNN uh, that he's in communication with, with Putin. So presumably in those conversations, Biden is reinforcing nuclear deterrence, but is Putin listening? Because isn't he, isn't he trapped? I mean, in other words... Isn't it odd, and, and again, I use the word paradox, that in a way, while he's threatening us, we've got to find a way to get this guy out of the bind that he's put himself in? That's very true. I mean, we, we need an off-ramp for President Putin. We need a way for him to get out of this crisis in a face-saving way, if you will. Um, but but the important thing to remember is that is that, you know, the, the people who have the decision on how to get out of this crisis is ultimately Ukraine and Russia. Right. They're the ones that are facing off on the battlefield. And so they have to reach some sort of compromise. And what that compromise would be is a complete mystery to me right now, because both sides continue to talk about and support their maximal aims. Right. Ukraine wants to push Russia completely out of Ukraine, including Crimea, and rightly so. It's Ukrainian land. I completely support that. Uh, and Russia wants, is, has now made these, these eastern and southern regions 
um, of Ukraine, you know, technically part of Russia in an illegitimate and, and not legal way. So both sides are digging in. Both sides are doubling down. It's hard to see what the compromise is that allows some sort of political um, solution. And that's what makes this so, so dangerous is that, you know, we want to see Ukraine keep pushing. We want to see Ukraine push Russia all the way out. At what point does that create such a political crisis for President Putin back home that he does something even worse than he's doing today? Well, during the Cold War, of course, there was a very active anti-nuclear movement in in Europe and here in the United States and in the state of California. We had the, in 1983, had the nuclear freeze movement, massive demonstrations across the country and around the world against nuclear weapons. Ironically, the only demonstrations or the only pressure on Putin in Russia is coming from the pro-nuclear war side. I mean, he's being hammered by hawks and, and nationalists to get tough. That's why supposedly he unleashed all of those cruise missiles and, and other missiles on, on civilian targets and infrastructure in, in Ukraine, you know, killing civilians just to satisfy the bloodlust of the of the hawks on state TV and and the ultranationalists. I mean, it's a very strange situation in Russia. Completely, as I say, there is no anti-nuclear uh, lobby in Russia. No, completely right. I mean, of course, there's, there's, there's no uh, democracy in Russia. There's very small peace movement, uh, although, of course, of course, there are some uh, and it, you know, even here in the United States, um, it, it's hard to call for uh, nuclear reductions or disarmament in the face of a nuclear threat from Russia, uh, which is why I say, you know, we're going to have to stick with the tools we have to get through this crisis. But um, I'm hopeful that after this crisis is over, we can start thinking about different ways of doing things, um, because it's, it's clear to me that, you know, nuclear weapons, as we're seeing in this situation, do not keep the peace. Uh, and in fact, they've enabled and encouraged uh, President Putin to take the brutal, aggressive actions that he's currently doing in Ukraine. And so if we don't want to see a leader like Putin uh, continue this kind of behavior, either in Ukraine or in other states in his supposed sphere of influence, um, we need to get our arms around this problem, right? How do we convince uh, President Putin to reduce his reliance on nuclear weapons. Uh, part of that is the United States setting an example. Part of that is the United States and the West uh, speaking to the countries that are supporting or at least not opposing uh, Russia at this point. And this is primarily China and India. You know, unless we can isolate Russia uh, more completely than we have, um, they're not going to respond to the kind of international pressure that we need to bring. Uh, and so part of this is a lot of this is a diplomatic effort um, with China, with India and other countries that Russia's activities are completely irresponsible, have no place in the modern world, and that they have to come out much more strongly against what Russia is doing. So just in the last minute, Tom Kalina, back to the new national security strategy that stresses challenges from Russia and China, at the same time saying that it can simultaneously work with China and Russia and other allies to curb pandemics, slow climate change, boost food and energy security, etc. So it's a mixed message, to say the least, right? 
It is. I mean, on the one hand, they're saying, you know, China is our major strategic challenge uh, that we have to rein in. And on the other hand, they're saying that China and cooperating with China is essential to all of these other transnational threats like climate change, pandemic and all the rest. Uh, it's really hard to uh, to thread that needle. Right. How do you how do you look at China as a as a challenger, as a, as a potential competitor, but also as a partner? Uh, and it's 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 quite right. You know, we cannot handle deal with climate change and pandemics and all the rest without cooperation from China. So, um, you know, they, they sort of lay it out there as a as a conundrum. Uh, but uh, certainly, you know, part of me thinks we need to tone down uh, the competition rhetoric with China and and ramp up more of the cooperative diplomacy rhetoric, because I'm not sure you can actually do both things at the same time. Well, Tom Kalina, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Tom Kalina, who is the Director of Policy at the Plowshares Fund, where he works as a researcher, analyst and advocate to end U.S. nuclear testing, rationalize anti-missile programs, extend the Non-Proliferation Treaty and secure Senate ratification for a New START treaty. He previously served as research director of the Arms Control Association, was the executive director and co-founder of the Institute for Science and International Security, and director of the Global Security Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. He's the co-host of the Press the Button podcast and co-author with William Perry of The Button, The New Nuclear Arms Race and Presidential Power from Truman to Trump. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the call by the head of the United Nations for a rapid action force to be deployed in Haiti, which is now a lawless state controlled by gangs. Can you tell me where we're heading? Lincoln County Road or Armageddon? Seem like I've been down this way before. Is there any truth in that, senor? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Gary Pierre-Pierre, who's a Haitian-born Pulitzer Prize-winning multimedia and entrepreneurial journalist who left the New York Times in 1999 to launch the Haitian Times, a New York-based English-language weekly publication serving the Haitian diaspora. He is the co-founder of the City University of New York Center for Community and Ethnic Media, and his latest article at the Haitian Times is Another Invasion of Haiti is Coming. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gary Pierre-Pierre. Thank you for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Gary. And uh, short of uh, an invasion, today a U.S. interagency delegation led by top State Department officials along with Defense Department officials arrived in Haiti. And, of course, a few days ago, the U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres had proposed an international rapid reaction force to help security situation in in Haiti, which is pretty desperate with street gangs now blockading oil terminals and essentially controlling the country. So the concern surely is, Gary, is that the last thing you need is for international peacekeepers to come in and restore a corrupt and illegitimate government. And is that what's going to happen this time? 
Well, I hope not. I don't know. I mean, I wrote my column. I say it's inevitable. I think it's inevitable because uh, all the uh, activities in the recent weeks, if you will, uh, were needed about uh, seven months ago. I think last year when uh, American missionaries were kidnapped and the State Department did very little to deal with that situation, it emboldened those gangs. And so today here we are, where they, they are able to even paralyze the country even more than one thought was possible. Um, they, they've basically cut off the uh, uh, fuel supply into the capital, and uh, the gallon of gas is at about 60 US dollars in the black market, if you can find it. And if you find it, chances are it might be uh, diluted with water and other stuff that will then destroy your uh, your car engine. And so uh, we are at a crossroad right now when the, the State Department and Defense Department are, are moving. Um, it, it, it's really not going to stem the problem. Uh, and if they go in and eradicate the gang, as I outlined in my column, they really have to also deal with the uh, social underpinnings that have created this problem in the first place. So, but doesn't the U.S. government always support these corrupt, illegitimate governments? They, they've never, at least from my memory, ever allowed the Haitian people to decide their own political future. Well, this time I hope it will be different. I really do. And I, I will do everything in my power, whatever voice that I have, just utilizing colleagues like you to go out and talk to people and just let people know that they should be outraged because it's the American people's tax dollars that's going to support these corrupt and oligarch uh, cabal, if you will, that's never really given the country a chance. We talk about the gangs, but the gangs have people backing them up. There, you have a small group of of, of industrialists, whatever you want to call them, who are controlling everything. And no matter what any government tries to do in Haiti, they will sow uh, a chaos to, to make sure that nothing happens. And so they could uh, retain their hegemony uh, in the country, on the country. And so this is a vicious cycle that unfortunately the State Department has repeated since 1991, if not be, be before, some would argue, and now I hope that the Haitian Americans, you know, we are sort of like in a unique position as Haitian born or, or of Haitian ancestry, but American citizens. So we have a, a stake on both sides and we can exert some pressure on Washington to make sure they do the right thing this time around. Well, I think it's pretty fair to say, Gary, that Biden does not want to intervene militarily, but it seems like he may not have any choice. He doesn't. He doesn't have any choice because the situation is untenable. I don't think anything short of actual, you know, excuse the expression, gun blazing in the streets of Port-au-Prince is going to do the trick because they're going to call the bluff. You can put all the Coast Guard cutters all you want, but unless you're on the ground, how are you going to stop them? The police cannot stop them because here's the irony uh, in the State Department and the Commerce Department, they've put some limitation on the police force in Haiti, on the, their ability to order or to get guns and ammunition from the U.S. And so they can't. 
whereas the gangs and the acolytes are able to smuggle whatever ammunition they need into the country because hear this they own private ports it's all legal so nobody's controlling what's coming in and out of those ports and so this is why i i think that um i don't want this i'm not advocating this but i don't see no other way of dealing with this problem right now so the gangs who now control the cities and most of all control the oil terminals and they're just jacking up the price of oil. What'd you say it was? A gallon of gas? 60 bucks a gallon? Yeah, in the black market because every right. gas station is closed. So right. they're not, they don't have any fuel. And it could be contaminated and diluted with water. So they outgun the, the police and the military, right? The gangs. Well, there isn't a military in Haiti because in 1994, when former President Jean-Bertrand Aristide was restored to power, by, with the help of 20,000 U.S. soldiers, uh, the deal was that he was going to uh, get rid of the military, and it did. So today, Haiti does not have a military force. It has a police force to basically provide security. But what happened is that force has been politicized and infiltrated by the gangs. And therefore, it's unable to carry out its security mission. But also the the political class have ties to these gangs, don't they, along with the oligarchs? Uh, All sides, yes. Yeah. The, the, the gangs uh, were an instrument to the political class and the oligarch, but now the gangs have their own power as well. Because the kidnapping, a lot of that was going on was just their own doing. It was their side hustle to make money because it was easy money. Right, and what, what was the resolution of the kidnapping of those American uh, missionaries? They kept jacking up the ransom money. What I don't re recall what happened in the end there. Were they released? Well, supposedly they escaped, and I put the escape in quotation marks. Um, they left. Uh, we reported as as long as everyone, with everyone else that, yeah, this is what happened. Uh, they just left, and uh, they were rescued by some passers-by and just got them out of the country. It was kind of a fanciful ending, to be quite honest. And so people would just drop it, drop the story because there was so many other things to report. But it was, they, they left, but uh, no one, few people believe the story that they just escaped because you have a group of white missionaries escaping in the middle of the night and not drawing the attention of anybody. I, I find that hard to believe. It's incredulous. But we last spoke over an issue where few people believe the official story about the assassination of the former president, right? Yeah, I mean, it still remains murky. The FBI, from what I understand, is investigating. We haven't heard anything where the investigation stand. And so we're still waiting because here's the problem, Ian. It's just like it's a very opaque society. Uh, the institutions are weak. Uh, the media is, is handcuffed. It, it really is its ability to report the news is very limited. And so we just don't know. We, 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 we go by rumors or if we get some nuggets of information from the State Department, uh, we go with that. But uh, we report basically based on on the ground uh, accounts of what's going on and based on our in-depth knowledge, intimate knowledge of, 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 of the country. But there is 
aren't too many official channels where you go and get vetted information or credible information. But we do know from previous interventions, going back to 1915 and 1934, and the more recent intervention in 2004, that the UN peacekeepers, not only did they bring cholera, they also fathered all kinds of children with Haitian women who they abandoned, right? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, here's the other thing about the UN, that mission that you're referring to. It was unnecessary because the Haitians should have been able to uh, work out their differences, uh, whatever they were. And we know that when you are unable to do that and when it becomes a humanitarian crisis and what happens inevitably, the UN comes in with its bad policy. It has a history. It's not just in Haiti, the Congo uh, and, and, the Middle, and, and the Middle East and other places with UN missions. They do not go well. For whatever reason, I'm not an expert in the UN, but what I do know is that these missions don't accomplish their, their stated mission. So what do you expect to happen then? I mean, when will these peacekeepers arrive? And presumably there'll be street battles in Port-au-Prince, right? I don't think it's going to be a, a street keep, uh, peacekeepers as we had the last time. I think if it happens, and then I think it's going to happen, but it's just based on a purely analysis. So I, I'm not, I don't have any information that is being planned right now, or I don't have those such details. But based on my reading of the situation, I think at one point it will happen. I think you're going to have a rapid force, okay? We'll take out the gangs in, in, in a matter of weeks at the longest. But that's the easy part, Ian. That's the easy part. The The... The hard part is that how do you build a society? How do you get people, the oligarch who are very powerful, even if you get rid of the gangs, they still control the economy. And, and, and they are very monopolistic in nature. And how do you deal with that? This is a hard part. And this is why the past missions have failed miserably. And so I, I, I don't know if there's a plan for that. I don't know if there's an appetite for that, given all what's happening in the world right now with Ukraine and you have China and, and, and Taiwan tensions and other issues that the world is dealing with. Will they be able to you know, concentrate on Haiti and, and trying to build a, a society? One of the things that we, we doesn't get played in the international media is just like the, the, the number of middle class and professional people who have left Haiti in the last year. I don't have any friends. I have few. I'm not going to say any because there might be some. Most, the overwhelming majority of friends, contacts, and all of that have left. Either they've gone to the Dominican Republic or they come to the United States because it was impossible to live in Haiti. That's the reality on the ground. And this is why I'm saying that there's nothing else that can be done but to try to bring some foreign boots on the ground to restore some order and then try to put Umpty Dumpty back together again. But the morally repugnant elite that Amy Wilentz uh, refers to, the oligarchs, are they still there? Since they, they control the place behind the scenes, are they still living on the, on the top of the hill? Well, I don't know where they're living, but I could tell you what I know is that all of their family are, are out of the country. They're there uh, running their business, making sure that the government cannot collect the taxes that it needs 
in that they owe the government, that they have their, their iron grip remains tightly firm on the country, but it's not much of a social event. I mean, everything is closed. It's a ghost town. Uh, they're there, but they're not living a good life right now, I could tell you that. Well, the question is, though, if you're going to send in a, a rapid reaction force or whatever you want to call them to stop the gangs or, you know, shoot them or round them up or whatever they're going to do, and then you leave the real problem alone, which is the morally repugnant elite, it would seem to me, I mean, why are they bulletproof? Why has all these interventions that have gone on over the years not addressed this central problem? There can't be that many of them. Well, there aren't that many of them, but they control everything. Because, okay, if you have an intervention now, as you did the last time in 2004, the UN compounds are owned by these people. And the UN inevitably deals with them. Because, you know, we may talk about them as boogeymen, as, 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 as awful people that they may be, but... If you were to talk to one of them, you would think that this person is like the answer for Haiti. He really or she really cares about Haiti and is the right person. So you have to remember the nature of the State Department. They rotate uh, officers every two to three years. And so there's a, always a new crew to be suckered and to be uh, taken and, and, and thinking that these people are, are reasonable. So that's part of the problem now. I've always called for some sort of like post sort of intervention to get a, a sort of a, a core of Haitian Americans, professional, uh, who would go back to it and work within several ministries to help rebuild the capacity there. But because everyone with knowledge, unfortunately, with skills, have left the country, as has been done. As, as has been the case recently. And so you you have to find a way to bring people back to help build the society. And that hasn't been something that uh, the State Department has been interested in. The, the French has something similar in Africa, but they do it to the French people, what they call it, the copian. These are technic technocrats who are working alongside um, the local officials. And I think something like that will help build capacity, but no one wants to do that. Uh, they want to, they do it for the police because there was a program where Haitian American officers uh, were working alongside their Haitian counterparts, and that was working until uh, former President Donald Trump uh, disbanded the, the 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 program because he wanted to save money, and so that sort of like then emboldened the uh, the the gangs because they no longer had you know, the, the, the well-trained officers with the intelligence to monitor their operations to keep them at bay. And so after that was gone, then they, they, they came out and we started seeing brazen kidnappings taking place at all times of the day. Well, just in closing, Gary Pierre-Pierre, in terms of this U.S. delegation led by a top State Department official, along with the Defense Department officials that arrived in Haiti today, are they... Again, just as clueless, I mean, is there anybody in the State Department, anybody from the Haitian diaspora, anybody from the professional class that you mentioned that have left the country but could contribute so much to stabilizing it? 
They could, but you have to have a process in place for that to happen. It, I just can't go back, or oh, uh, a financial expert just can't go back. It has to be a system. There has to be a program in place to allow them to work, to function. Because after all, Haiti has its own ways of operation, uh, of operating, excuse me. And so you just can't go. Uh, you need to bring uh, a system and create a system into place so that these people can come in and be able to contribute. But just going on your own, trying to figure out what to do, it's full errands, nothing's going to happen. Well, Gary Pierre Pierre, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Gary Pierre Pierre, who is a Haitian-born Pulitzer Prize-winning multimedia and entrepreneurial journalist who left the New York Times in 1999 to launch the Haitian Times, a New York-based English-language weekly publication serving the Haitian diaspora. He's the co-founder of the City University of New York's Center for Community and Ethnic Media, and his latest article at the Haitian Times is Another Invasion of Haiti is Coming. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into why the Democratic candidate for the United States Senate in Wisconsin, Mandela Barnes, is trailing and not miles ahead of the most beatable Republican senator, Ron Johnson. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Matthew Rothschild, the Executive Director of the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign, who was previously editor and publisher at the Progressive Magazine in Madison, Wisconsin, where he worked for 32 years. Welcome to Background Briefing, Matthew Rothschild. Thanks, Ian. It's always nice to be back on your show. Well, thanks for joining us, Matthew. And What's happening in Wisconsin with this key Senate race? Obviously, there was an assumption that the Democrats could pick up the Wisconsin seat from Senator Ron Johnson. I mean, he's obviously almost feeble-minded and embarrassingly stupid. And the only smart thing he ever did in his life was marry a rich woman, right? I mean, the guy is so beatable. So what's happening there that Mandela Barnes, you know, there have been reports in the New York Times article a couple of days ago indicating that his campaign is flailing. So what, he had a big lead when he started. What happened? Well, number one, you know, Ron Johnson, remember, has won uh, two races here for Senate. First uh, against Russ Feingold, both times against Russ Feingold, the second time during a presidential race. So he shouldn't be underestimated as much as you and a lot of uh, folks in Wisconsin on the progressive and Democratic side despise Ron Johnson for legitimate reasons. Uh, So that's one thing. Uh, The second thing is, you know, we're a very close state, so it was always going to be a close election. Mandela Barnes got out of the gate fast when he won the primary against several excellent other contenders. And he ran a really good campaign, so that helped him get out of the gate to an early lead. But then he got hit with just a barrage of really nasty, racist ads about Mandela Barnes and crime. And he's going to make your community uh, unsafe. 
and and he's not like you are. He's different. And one ad actually darkened his face to make him even scarier to to white folks who are scared of people of dark complexion. And so they're making him out to be the scariest black man in Wisconsin and with a ton of money on every, you know, Green Bay Packers game. And uh, every time you opened any screen that you owned, there were these nasty, hideous, ugly ads and they work. Negative ads work. So the that's not a shocker. Uh, the only thing I can say is that the Barnes campaign could have been a little better prepared for this attack that a, a lot of us figured was coming anyway. And the other thing was uh, Mandela Barnes' ads, uh, originally the first couple versions weren't uh, doing much good for him. I mean, they were trying to, I suppose, depict him as just a, a regular guy. So he was talking about his mom being a teacher and his dad working third shift, which he seemed to utter, uh, you know, all the time. And then there was one ad with him making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and another one uh, delivering uh, boxes of pizzas to kids in a classroom, which I still can't understand. And, and so they weren't issue oriented. Uh, they neither uh, kind of deflected the uh, horrible ads that he was getting hit with, nor did they uh, put him on the offensive. But lately he's taken to the offense. Uh, he, he's gone on offense against Ron Johnson. He did a tremendous job in the debate last week. He's got another debate coming up. Uh, and uh, he's talking about the abortion issue, which is a winning issue for him. Some of the allied groups are talking about the issue of Social Security and Medicare, because, of course, Ron Johnson wants to put Social Security and Medicare on the chopping block every year. So, yes, Ron Johnson should be super vulnerable if you look at his record and his outrageous statements and his role in the January 6th insurrection and on and on. But Ron Johnson was always going to be kind of tough to beat. Uh, and Mandela Barnes is now just kind of getting his footing. So I think the race is closing uh, and it's going to be close. So the New York Times is reporting that Mandela Barnes was approached by one of his supporters who was uh, canvassing door to door at an event, and she presented him with a typed-up list of concerns about his campaign, basically saying you've got to show more fire. Now, he is a former firefighter, isn't he? Uh, I believe he's a, a former firefighter. He was a legislator, too. Uh, I'm not sure on the firefighter thing, actually. But look, what that person told him uh, when he was out you know, shaking hands and on the stump is what I've been hearing from a lot of Democrats and progressives here over the last month. When is Mandela Barnes going to fire back? When is he going to take the offense? When is he going to bring it to Ron Johnson? And he has taken the offense now. He is bringing it to Ron Johnson now. So I think people uh, on the Democratic and progressive side are a little bit more uh, pleased with the direction of the Mandela Barnes campaign right now, especially after the tremendous debate performance he had the other night. So is there, though, a tendency for the Democrats in the state of Wisconsin to rely on those islands of progressive support in Madison and Milwaukee and not campaign across the state? Because I've talked to a couple of people in Wisconsin who've said that if you travel throughout the state, in the rural areas, you see yard signs for Ron Johnson and, and Trump, but you don't see any Mandela bond signs anywhere. Well, it's important. I've always thought it was important for Democrats to compete all across the state, no doubt about that. But let's be realistic. Races in Wisconsin for Democrats are won in Dane County, which is where Madison is, and in Milwaukee County. 
And so they really have got to get the numbers at, at record heights uh, in those two counties. I do think uh, yard signs and road signs are really important. And, uh, you know, it's there are uh, supporters of, of Mandela Barnes around the state. And uh, I'm hoping that, you know, if they're in rural areas, you know, they have the courage to put up a Mandela Barnes sign. If that's who they're for, I mean, people should not be afraid to say who they're for in a democracy. Um, but I do think it is uh, vitally important for Democrats and for the Barnes campaign. If they want to win, they've got to have record turnouts in Dane County and Milwaukee County. So I don't think that's a short-sighted strategy. I think it's a crucial strategy, but I also think campaigning in rural areas is vital. Mandela Barnes in the debate several times talked about farmers. That's a, a crucial constituency in rural Wisconsin, of course. But how's he doing with the black vote in Milwaukee, which was key? I mean, let's face it, you know, Trump only won the state by about 25,000 votes and so did Biden. So it's always going to be close. But one of the arguments about Trump's victory against over Hillary Clinton back in 2016 was that there was a downturn in the, the African-American vote in Milwaukee. In other words, she didn't inspire the kind of turnout that Obama had inspired earlier. Well, I'm expecting Mandela Barnes to inspire a tremendous turnout from African-Americans in the Milwaukee area and across the state. Uh, he is from Milwaukee. He speaks to real bread and butter issues. Uh, he represents the community well. He's got a tremendous base of support in Milwaukee. People are really fond of him in Milwaukee, and I've been to Milwaukee several times in the last month. So I think you're going to see a, a super high turnout in Milwaukee. So the criticism of, of Barnes's campaign so far is that he hasn't been fired up and he's been too passive. And you're saying now that he's turning around. But is he in any way restricted in the way that Obama was, that he didn't want to get sort of angry in a way because that would, you know, be a gift to the right-wing racists who want to portray him as an angry black man. Is that a factor here? Well, it's a pathetic fact of life in racist America that if you're an African-American candidate, you got to tone it down for fear of turning off the racists uh, in the voting public. And so maybe that's one of the reasons why his campaign was running those sappy commercials about him delivering pizzas to kids in classrooms and making a peanut butter sandwich, just saying, I'm a regular Joe, I'm, I'm inoffensive. But, you know, uh, he is really, uh, if you watch the debate, he was very aggressive against Ron Johnson. He landed one punch after another against Johnson, who was just stumbling so bad that at the end, and uh, after the debate, he, uh, Ron Johnson blamed the media for ganging up on him. So you know when you're blaming the media that you did something wrong in the debate. Well, but he is so uh, beatable. I mean, this is a man who, I think on Tuesday, he's apologized for the uh, insurrection and basically says it wasn't an insurrection. He's, he, well, he keeps he, saying it was, yeah, yeah. He keeps saying it wasn't an armed insurrection, uh, you know. And of course, he wanted to deliver uh, ballots to uh, 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 false electors to Vice President Pence just minutes before the comm commencement of the Electoral College. In the debate the other night, he, he was asked about climate change, and he said, "The climate has always changed; it's still changing." So, yes, I believe in climate change, uh, and you know that's his. That's his belief in climate change. This, this it's always been changing. I mean, the guy's a joke uh, on so many issues. But look, uh, you know, we're a state split down the middle. We're a state with 
you know, uh, Republicans win half the time, Democrats win half the time, and a lot of people vote, you know, the way they cheer for their favorite, uh, you know, sports teams. So it's hard to dislodge them from their voting patterns. And that's why, you know, every every time Ron Johnson's on the ballot, he basically starts with 44 percent of the vote. It's not that far to get to 50. And did in the debate, did Mandela Barnes mention the fact that Ron Johnson takes his talking points from Putin? I mean, this is a time when Putin is, you know, mercilessly slaughtering civilians in Ukraine. Putin didn't come up in the debate. Maybe he'll come up in the in the next uh, debate. So Ron Johnson did mention January 6th several times. And every time he mentioned it, you know what Ron Johnson did? He said, why are you focusing on that riot? Why don't you talk about the riots at Black Lives Matter? I mean, it was just disgusting. Right. Well, the technique, though, and it should have been anticipated uh, that the Republicans would slime Mandela bombs with attack ads, it's been working for them also in Pennsylvania and in Nevada and Georgia. I mean, uh, this is what they do, right? So This is what they do. No one should be surprised, but the ferocity and the grotesqueness of the ads, I think, took the Barnes campaign a, a little bit by surprise. But, you know, this is the, these are uh, traditional Republican tactics, and in this day and age, they're, they're getting even more brazen and more racist than before. But they've also been using Mandela Barnes' past statements against him, right, from a 2020 television interview in which he said that uh, he thought that funds should be diverted from overbloated budgets in police departments to social services, and that allowed the Republicans to pin this defund the police label on him. Yeah, they're trying to do that, too. But even Ron Johnson in the debate acknowledged that Mandela Barnes didn't use the words defund the police. So they can try to hang it around his neck. But Mandela Barnes responds very well to that uh, when he's asked by reporters or in the debate, for instance. So how do you feel about the three weeks we've got left here to beat the most beatable Republican senator there is? This one looked as if it was solidly in the uh, Democratic column. Do you think he can build on this momentum? This is always going to be a close race. I still think it's going to be a close race. Mandela Barnes kind of tripped out of the gates after the primary, but now he's got his footing back, and I think he's making a real race of it. So it's going to be too close to call until election night. So is there any any indications that there's a, any new ads coming out or a new messaging coming out? Or if you're depending upon the debate... I mean, do you have any idea of how many people watch the debate and whether it shift the polls? And I haven't seen the numbers. I know it boosted the enthusiasm of Mandela Barnes supporters. He's raised a lot of money, uh, kind of at a record pace since that debate. So those are two positive signs. Uh, I think by stress, by going on the offense and talking about issues that work for him, like abortion and Social Security and Medicare, he's helping himself. Uh, by talking about January 6th, he's helping himself, and, and this is why I think he's getting some momentum right now. But at his campaigns, he's had this banner up, hasn't he? Ron against Roe. I mean, there have been some criticisms in an article in Politico saying that he's, Mandela Barnes is relying too much on the abortion issue and not the other bread and butter issues. Is, is that a fair criticism? I don't think so. I think it's totally off the mark. I think by stressing... 
the defense of a woman's freedom to choose in these most difficult decisions of her life, uh, and that he would support legislation to uh, make Roe federal law, that he's really helping him. I mean, the enthusiasm among young women in Wisconsin is very high. Registrations are way up. This is a winning issue for him. So those who criticize him for uh, stressing the abortion issue, I think they're they're missing the boat here. And is is Governor Tony Evers standing by him? And I mean, he's in a tough re-election race on, on his own, isn't he? Yeah, Tony Evers, uh, our incumbent governor, is in a very tight race himself. Uh, against Tim Michaels, a construction uh, business owner uh, who is very far to the right, and the polls are showing that one to be extremely close, too. Yes, I mean, the governor and the lieutenant governor are very close, Tony Evers and Mandela Barnes. So uh, they they both support each other, defend each other, and campaign together sometimes. So, uh, you know, both races kind of too close to call right now. Right. But, I mean, there seems to be also a good reason to run against the uh, Supreme Court's abortion decision is that the state of, of Wisconsin, the Republicans, have refused to consider changes to the state's 1849 law banning abortions. I repeat, 1849, for God's sake. I mean, that's the shocking thing. You know, this is decades before women had a right to vote, this 1849 law. It's... Uh, criminalizes abortion, even in cases of rape and incest. And Tim Michaels, who's running against Tony Evers, totally uh, endorsed uh, that 1849 law. That's how uh, out of step he is with the people of Wisconsin. I'm 85 percent of Wisconsinites believe that a woman who's been raped or has been a victim of uh, incest has got to have a right to have an abortion. Well, Matthew Rothschild, I thank you for giving us an update on this race in Wisconsin. And, uh, fingers crossed for the Democrats. I mean, that I know that's an outrageously partisan statement on my part, but it's mostly because I find Johnson's just so embarrassingly stupid, and I and I don't believe in along with Tommy Turberville, I don't. And then God help us if you get uh, Herschel Walker in there. I mean, we don't need the U.S. Congress to be turned into an idiocracy. No, we, we hear you here in Wisconsin loud and clear, and we're feeling it every day. Well, I thank you again, and I've been speaking with Matthew Rothschild, the executive director of the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign, who was previously editor and publisher at the Progressive Magazine in Madison, Wisconsin, where he worked for 32 years. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. 
Bye for now. Disappeared by half